remain standing out of uh, eager expectation to hear from God through His Word and grab your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 1 is where we will be this morning. You may want to grab one of the new chairback Bibles in front of you uh, and turn to page 855. As your pastors Mark Belanger and myself, we tend to preach from the ESV translation. We thought it was best that the chairback Bibles have that translation in front of you each and every week. And so it's a new Bible in the beautiful shade of blue that you can uh, give your attention to each week. And so this morning we do start a series of expositions through the Gospel of Luke by looking at the first 25 verses. So let me uh, read them for us, and then I will pray that God will bless our study, and then we will dive in. So let us hear now as God speaks to us through his word. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as a priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, Zechariah was chosen by Lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, and I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them, and he remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me 
to take away my reproach among the people. And Redeemer Church, what do we know about God's Word? The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. Let us pray together. Father, we come to You asking You to speak unto us through Your Word. For Your people are listening. Help us to receive Your Word with faith and love. To lay it up in our hearts. Lord, to even practice it in our lives. So do give us eagerness to receive from Your Word. Help me to preach boldly and clearly as I ought. As a dying man unto dying people. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Luke's Gospel was written sometime around 61 A.D. Therefore, we know it was in all likelihood the third of our four Gospels in the Bible to be completed, as Matthew and Mark would have already been published. We know actually not too much about Luke's origins. We know that he was not an apostle. We know from Colossians chapter 4 that he was a doctor. He was a physician. We know from Acts and even subsequent letters from Paul that he was a near constant companion with Paul during his missionary journeys and his ministry to the churches in and around Asia Minor. If you read his books, which would be Luke and Acts, what you would, what you would see is this man is clearly educated. His literary style is actually quite pronounced. He's very gifted in his writing ability. And what you may not also know is that Luke makes up just over 25% of the New Testament. It is the longest book, by word count at least, that you find in the New Testament. And so as we begin our journey through Luke, you might want to just buckle your spiritual seatbelt and get comfortable because we will be here for a while. And I hope you won't soon be asking, are we there yet in the coming weeks and months Luke's presentation of Christ is very simple. He is after us understanding that Jesus Christ is the long-expected Messiah and Lord come to save sinners, all in fulfillment of God's sovereign plan. So Spurgeon once said that a true gospel sermon is a sermon that directs your eyes to look to Jesus Christ. And so in these coming weeks and months... We want every single Lord's Day to stop, to sit, to stare at God's Word that we might see Christ lifted up in our midst, His person and His work. And I pray that even these coming studies would create faith in some of you and confirm faith in others of you. The simple theme for the first 25 verses in Luke is God's plan for a prophet who is going to prepare the way for the Messiah. This first scene that Luke is after us understanding is simply about God's plan for the forerunner of Christ to come. And so I want to walk through our 25 verses under two simple headings. First, in verses 1 through 4, we just want to see Luke's purpose. And then verses 5 through 25, we just want to see the Lord's promise. So Luke's purpose and the Lord's promise is where we're going this morning. And kids, what you might want to have your ear out for this morning is Luke is after getting you to ask a simple question. Will you believe God's surprising promises? Or maybe said a different way, will you believe God's promise even when it seems 
impossible. So Luke's purpose is what we want to see first of all. Notice again what he says in verse 1. He says that many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. And he decides in his own wisdom that Luke says in verse 2, you'll notice, he's going to add his own voice as well. That he is going to write down an orderly account, you'll see in verse 3. So what you want to think about Luke as it relates to the other gospel authors is Luke particularly is like an investigative journalist in his construction of a biography of Jesus Christ. He says that he has interviewed eyewitnesses, that he has talked to ministers of the word in order to write down with great accuracy and write down with pointed chronology this story of Jesus. And he's writing to a particular man, did you notice as we read the text a few minutes ago? You see in verse 3, this man named Theophilus is the one he's addressing his gospel to. Theophilus is a name that means friend of God or lover of God. And we know really nothing about Theophilus. It seems likely that he was probably a new convert to Christianity. It also seems likely that he was probably Luke's patron and publisher. But what is more certain is why Luke is writing this story for Theophilus. Do you see his purpose again in verse 4? That you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So verses 1 through 4 is a very long and sophisticated and elegant sentence in the Greek. Just one sentence. And the last word is certainty. It is there for emphasis. Luke is wanting to write a story so that Theophilus might be certain about the truth of Jesus Christ. So why then would the Holy Spirit want us to read this story? Why then might God want us as a church body to give patient attention to it every Lord's Day morning for the coming months? Simply that we might have confidence and certainty regarding who Jesus is and what he did. So if you wanted to summarize Luke's purpose in this book, you could kind of write it down as this sentence. It's careful history and theology meant to give you certainty about Christ. Luke's gospel is unique. It's very careful in its historical attention, has unique theological themes, and these are meant that you might have certainty about Jesus. So students, if you're in here this morning, I do hope that you would pay attention in these coming months, because surely at some point in your life, students, if it hasn't happened already, a friend, or maybe a teacher, or maybe a professor will question the claims of Christianity, maybe even mock the truth about Jesus Christ as it comes to us in the Bible. And this study hopefully will help you stand firm, hope you understand the truth about the Lord that I pray you love. And even for us as members here at Redeemer Church, as we want to exalt Christ in our life together, extend Christ in the neighborhoods where we find ourselves, we want to have confidence in who Jesus is and what this good news about Jesus actually is communicating and announcing to the world. And you might even be in here this morning and are skeptical as you sit in here on this Lord's Day about Christianity. Maybe you're even trying to investigate the claims of Christ. I pray that this would be a a welcome place for you, that you might stay with us for the coming months and, and examine with us honestly 
the truth as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke. So Luke's purpose is simple, that you might be certain. And his first account of history and theology is about a promise regarding a baby who is about ready to be born. The Lord's promise is what comes to us now in verses 5 through 25. If you just scan your eyes through verses 5 through 7, uh, you'll see that Luke introduces us to a couple characters. He's a good storyteller. He's introducing us to a few main characters for the story that he's soon going to unfold. And the attention in this first scene centers on Zechariah and his wife named Elizabeth. And he wants us to know, Luke wants us to know in those first few verses, three particular things about this family. First is that they're a priestly family. Do you see that again in verse 5? Zechariah is a priest of the division of Abijah. And Elizabeth herself was from the daughters of Aaron. Aaron being the first high priest in the Old Testament. So this is a priestly family. And then you see in verse 6 that this is also a godly family. You see how Luke retells their piety? They're both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. That's a typically Old Testament way of talking about sincere godliness. And I I tend to think that it's there for us for what comes next in verse 7. Because this is a godly family, this is a priestly family, but this is also a childless family. Verse 7, in verse 7 Luke tells us that they are advanced in their age, Zechariah and Elizabeth, that they have no children. Uh, you may know that at this time in Jewish culture in the first century, to be childless was ordinarily believed to be a curse from God for some type of sin that had been going on within the given family. And Luke is out to present, no, they are devote, devoted to God. They are blameless and walking in his statutes. So this is not a couple that is childless as a result of God's curse. This seems to be a couple that God is going to use in wonderful ways for his glory in their own lives. And if you are steeped in the Old Testament scriptures as a first century Christian reading this gospel, you couldn't help but hear echoes of families in the Old Testament who were also childless. Abraham and Sarah. You can think of Manoah and his wife in Judges chapter 13. Or maybe Elkanah and Sarah. And do you remember the children that God graciously and gloriously brought into those families? Abraham, Samson, Samuel. So then we ought to ask the question, what child might come from this family that is godly yet childless? I spent many days in my youth, maybe you did similar things, daydreaming about and enacting, pretending to basically pretend to enact this greatest day in my life, the ultimate pinnacle day as I saw it, which in my mind was ultimate athletic glory. So no small number of afternoons were spent either by myself or with friends pretending to hit the game-winning shot in the NBA Finals or throw the touchdown bass that brought our team ahead in the Super Bowl or maybe hitting the walk-off home run in Game 7 of the World Series, or in my sport specifically with soccer, it was striking the game-winning penalty in a World Cup final, a shootout. And I wonder what you might have dreamed about as the greatest day in your life, or what might you even be dreaming about as the greatest day in your life. 
Now we can be quite sure as verse 8 begins to unfold a day in Zechariah's life that it's unfolding what would have been undoubtedly the greatest day in his life. One in which he would have dreamed for years and years about what happens. Because you'll notice in verse 8 that he was serving as a priest before God when his division was on duty. There were about 18,000 priests ministering at the temple at this time, broken into 24 divisions. There were too many priests for the amount of priestly work, and so each division of priests would serve just twice a year for an entire week. And when it came to burning incense, this special act of of worship and service unto God, it was actually a -a once-in-a-lifetime event. You were never allowed to burn incense before the Lord as a priest more than once in your life. And in some ways, for common priests, was the greatest day in their life. And in verse 9, notice that we're told, according to the custom of the priesthood, Zechariah is chosen by Lot to what? Enter the temple and burn incense. So he would have entered into the temple at this time. He would have crossed the first holy veil, this first holy curtain. We're told that people are outside surrounding the temple courtyard praying. And here comes Zechariah for what? he would have dreamed about for years and years. The opportunity to burn incense before the Lord. Surely he would have come across that first curtain with trepidation, expectation for what he was about to do. Picture the scene. Before him would have been the great curtain that stood in front of the Holy of Holies. This ornate and beautiful curtain that was intended to keep out God's people except for one day a year. And to his left would have been the the golden candlesticks, the golden lampstand. And to his right would have been the table of showbread. And then right in the center of those would have been the altar of incense. And so as Zechariah is walking forward to burn this incense, waiting for so long to do this act that he will never get to do again for the rest of his life, suddenly an unexpected visitor appears. You notice in verse 11, there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Now you find out in verse 19, if you look down there again, that this angel's name is Gabriel. And do you happen to know when the last time was that Gabriel showed up in the Bible? Some 500 years before to the prophet Daniel. Daniel chapter 9 is the last time we see Gabriel has shown up in redemptive history. And it is quite significant what Gabriel was doing in that moment with Daniel. God sent Gabriel to Daniel to tell Daniel that his prayers had been answered. That God was going to answer Daniel's prayers. And what was Daniel praying about? The redemption of Israel. Their release from their captivity. Their return home to their homeland. And God goes even further to say, not only that, but God is going to send, or Gabriel says that God is going to send a Messiah who is going to bring about this great final exodus of God's people. So it is surely no accident then, the next time Gabriel shows up, 500 years later, he shows up in the temple, which is the place of God's presence, and he says to Daniel, your prayer, says to Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. What might Zechariah have been praying about? Well, commonly it's believed that Zechariah was praying for a child, which is possible, but it is much more likely that Zechariah was praying, as priests would often do as they were burning incense and serving before the Lord. He was praying in the same way Daniel was. 
for the redemption of Israel. Now just take a step back for a minute and understand 500 years, half of a millennium has passed between Gabriel showing up to Daniel and says, your prayer has been heard. And he shows up to Zechariah and says, your prayer is now being answered. Have you noticed in scripture how God often says, I will answer your prayer. My promises will be fulfilled, but it may not be in your lifetime. And he's no less good And he's no less wise and gracious for waiting. So he says to Zechariah, notice as Gabriel opens his mouth and tries to quiet his fear in verse 13, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. John is a name which means God's grace has visited us, or God has been gracious. It's as though his prayers for national Israel, Zechariah's, for his personal family and the provision of a son have all come together in this one moment, that yes, you are going to get a son. And Gabriel goes on to detail what this son's ministry is going to be like. So as I was studying the passage earlier this week, I just wrote down six words that were helpful for me at least, thinking about what John's ministry would be like. And you might find these helpful as well. First of all, it's going to be a ministry, you'll notice in verse 15, of greatness before the Lord. Because Gabriel says he's going to be great before the Lord. Even Jesus is going to come along and say, there is no one born of a woman greater than John. Yet the least of these in the kingdom of Christ are as great as he is. Uh, Many of you know that we have five young children at home. Our sixth is Lord willing due in about a month's time. And so I try every day to pray for each one of our children by name. I'm sure many of you parents and grandparents strive to do the same. I wonder what kind of things you pray for to be true about your children or grandchildren, or even children if you're in here this morning. What kind of things do you hope to be true about your life? What are you trying to pursue? More important, of course, than being a star athlete, earning prestigious college scholarships, being the top student in the class, a successful businessman or businesswoman in the world, or even being the next president of the United States, is that you would be great before the Lord. Which in this context means ministering in God's power unto God's pleasure. John is going to be great before the Lord. Secondly, it's going to be a ministry marked of holiness in his calling. Verse 15 continues, And says he must not drink wine or strong drink. Sounds a lot like the Nazarite vow in the Old Testament, which simply means he's going to be consecrated. He's going to be set apart in his calling. And thirdly, he's going to be a ministry marked by fullness of the Spirit. You see how verse 15 ends? He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Does your understanding of Scripture, does your theology have a place for God's grace going even to the youngest of children? Even from the womb, he's going to be full of the Spirit. Which is surely pointing to the uniqueness of John's ministry, his calling to prepare a way for the Lord. But even it hints at a theme that we're going to see often throughout the Gospel of Luke, and it's the importance and necessity of the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit is necessary for belief in Christ, And the Spirit is also necessary for ministry in Christ. And the fourth thing that Gabriel tells us will be true about John's ministry is going to be preaching that is marked by repentance. 
You notice verse 16 and 17, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Then skip down to verse 17. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. And you might know the story of John the Baptist. His preaching was one that was centered on repentance. And you'll see even in this prophecy about John, it's a vertical dimension of repentance. Their hearts will return to the Lord, but also this horizontal reality that the hearts of fathers will return to their children. Fifthly, it's a ministry that's going to be marked by likeness to Elijah. You see that at the beginning of verse 17. John is going to go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. Which is, in other words, a fulfillment of the prophecy that we read earlier this morning in Malachi chapter 4. The final words of the Old Testament, and then God's revelation goes silent for 450 years or so, was that Elijah was going to come and usher in the great day of the Lord. So you can be pretty sure that Zechariah as a priest, as he comes in to minister at the altar of incense, he's very much aware and surely even has it memorized, this prophecy of the great Elijah to come that will usher in the day that will bring about the redemption of God's people. And here comes Gabriel saying, your son is going to be that prophet. Even as Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 14, John the Baptist was the Elijah that was prophesied to come. And then finally, it's going to be a ministry of of readiness for the Messiah. You see how verse 17 ends? He's going to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So this is the prophet who's going to come. This is the prophet long foretold in ages past that's going to come and prepare the way for the Messiah. John the Baptist born to Zechariah and Elizabeth. Imagine getting that news in a Christmas card in the next few weeks. A family member who had long wanted a child says, God has graced us and now my wife is pregnant or I am pregnant. And this is who the child is going to be. A ministry of greatness, holiness, fullness. A ministry of repentance, likeness, and and readiness in preparing God's people for the coming Messiah. It almost seems as though it's news that's too good to even be believed. Surely not all of this is going to be wrapped up within one little baby boy. It seems too good for Zechariah to believe. Do you see how he responds in verse 18? He asks Gabriel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. I hope you know that a natural world view makes it hard to believe in a supernatural God who makes supernatural promises. Zechariah looks at himself and says, I'm advanced in age and my wife is too. I'm going to need a sign in order to believe this promise. That's how impossible it seems. And it's striking to me, and I hope it's striking to you as well, that even a man ministering as a priest with a rich religious heritage, struggles to believe God's promises. So strong is the temptation of unbelief. He wants a sign in order to believe God's promise, and he gets a sign, doesn't he? Just not the one he would have wanted, because it's a sign of God's discipline. You'll see how Gabriel speaks to him in verse 19 and 20. He says, I am Gabriel, and I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you. And bring you this good news, and behold, here's the sign, you will be silent 
and unable to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. So God stops his mouth lest he spread his unbelief. And it's amazing to me as I was reflecting on this passage how kind and compassionate God is even in my own life that I've never been disciplined unto being unable to speak because I haven't believed God's word. And Maybe you might even take it as a kindness this morning. If God has never disciplined you in this way, what compassion he has had towards you, towards people like you and me, towards a church that often struggles to believe God's covenant promises this side of heaven. So he's rendered mute. He's unable to speak. Then he comes out of the temple. You'll notice no small amount of commotion is created because he can't speak about what's going on. The people know that there's some sort of vision that has taken place in the temple. Surely over the course of the next nine months, Zechariah uh, begins to put into practice some sort of primitive sign language so he can communicate. He goes home, true to God's word, Elizabeth conceives, she gets pregnant. For five months she hides herself away. And do you see what she says in verse 25? Her first words in the Gospel of Luke, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. So children, think about this over the next couple weeks because Luke's going to bounce back and forth between a scene about John the Baptist and a scene about Jesus. And see if you can try to examine who is it that first believes God's promises. Is it the dad's? Zechariah and Joseph? Or is it the moms? Elizabeth and Mary. This is God's plan for the prophet who's going to come and pave the way for Jesus Christ, the Messiah who will save sinners. A few years ago, I came across a book uh, that recounted the story of a headline in a newspaper in New York City in 1872. Early November 1872, the New York Herald woke up its readers on a Monday morning to a headline that announced a shocking Sabbath carnival of death. And it proceeded to say how uh, the previous day a rhinoceros had somehow gotten loose from its pen in the, what is it, the Central Park Zoo in, in New York City. And it began to just rampage across the grounds. And it wasn't too long until a Numidian tiger a polar bear, or Numidian lion, a polar bear, a panther, and a Bengal tiger were also let loose upon the park and eventually the city. And these predators came upon bystanders and pedestrians, even came upon zookeepers, not leaving more than just a few dead in their wake. So the mayor had proclaimed, in light of the day's peril, a mandatory curfew until these animals could be contained and and returned to their cages. And so for about 48 hours, the city of New York City was on lockdown as everyone was scared, as the predators were still loose in the city. And evidently, thousands of people in New York City didn't read all the way to the bottom and the disclaimer that said, of course, the entire story printed above is pure fabrication. Not a single word of it is true. It was all a scheme from the editors to try to get the city officials to re-examine their emergency plans in service of the citizens. 
But do you know that it's true we live in a world that wants to put a disclaimer above the gospel according to Luke that says not a word of it is true. Yet Luke puts a disclaimer before his story, and what does he say? Every single word of what is to come is true and is there for you to be certain about Jesus Christ. So as we begin to close our meditation on this text, I want to think about a a few things, a few gospel characteristics from this first scene in Luke that, that you can be confident in, that even Luke wants us to be assured about as he is beginning to sketch out the story of Jesus Christ. The first of which is the gospel is about gladness for what God has done. The gospel is good news that is meant to bring gladness for what God has done. Look back at verse 1 as Luke begins his narrative. He says this is a narrative about the things that have been accomplished among us. You look down at verse 19 as Gabriel speaks to Zechariah. He says, I was sent to bring you what? Good news, which is just, I was sent to bring you gospel. And this gospel, according to verse 14, is supposed to make people joyful and glad because it's good news about what God is going to do, what God has done for his people in Jesus Christ. The gospel is not about what we have done for God, but what he has done for us, what he has accomplished for us, the promises that he has fulfilled for us in Jesus Christ. Do you feel as though gladness in the gospel is growing in your heart? As you stand at the end of another year in God's kindness that he's given to you, do you feel joy in Christ sitting itself ever deeper into your soul? And no matter the situation you find yourself in, of joy, of trial, of suffering, of blessing, do you sense as though gladness in Christ, gladness from the gospel is welling up and overflowing into your very countenance and into your life. Luke wants to hint at, right it from the beginning, is that this gospel is about gladness in what God has done. And secondly, the gospel is about belief in God's promises. It's such a central part of this text, isn't it? Here comes Gabriel to say, this is God's promise to you, Gabriel. You don't have to do anything to get it. You haven't even done anything to earn it. What must Gabriel, what must Zechariah do? Believe it. And yet he struggles to believe it. Edmund Clowney was a a very influential professor and eventually president of Westminster Theological Seminary a few decades ago, and he used to like to say that many people don't believe the gospel because it's simply too good to be true. And you might even be in here this morning and and, and feel the weight of that. It's not that the gospel is weak. It's not that the news about Christ is too small to believe. It's almost that it promises too much. Uh, You mean to tell me that if I turn from my sin and trust in Jesus Christ that my sins will be forgiven, that I will be washed clean by the blood of Christ, that the law will be written upon my heart, that the fullness of the Spirit will be poured into my soul, that I will have fellowship with and access to the Father, that I will get eternal life, that I will get everlasting rest in the presence of Jesus Christ and I will see the King in His beauty for all eternity? You mean I get all of that? 
Of course, the gospel word is yes and amen in Jesus Christ. So maybe you're in here this morning and are apart from Christ. The simple call of the gospel is to hear God's promises for you in Jesus Christ and receive them by faith, by faith alone. The gospel is about gladness for what God has done, belief in God's promises, and I want you to see a third hint in this first scene, and it's about the gospel being about God's power in our weakness. Luke is a historian. I said that at the beginning. Look back at verse 5. He situates the historical context for this entire first Christmas announcement. He says, In the days of Herod, king of Judah. Herod was a cruel, calculating, crafty ruler at this time. He would have occupied every morning headline, much in the same way that our current president does in the United States of America. He was the most powerful, he was the most prominent man in all of Judea at this time, and he just gets a brief mention in Luke's gospel. Luke runs right by him to tell the story of a lowly country priest and his wife who are childless. Yet it's from this lowly country family that the long-promised and the long-awaited Elijah is going to come. And of course, we're going to see, Lord willing, in the next couple of weeks, it is from a lowly, young, carpentry family that the long-promised, the long-expected Messiah is going to come. Have you noticed in Scripture that God delights to use the outcasts and the misfits, the lowly and the needy, the minimized, the minimalized and the marginalized, those that the world shames, those that the world forgets, those that culture overlooks, those are the ones God loves to use. So you might feel in some ways, as you want to serve in Christ's kingdom, I don't have any great skills, any unusual talents. I am just an ordinary person seeking to love the Lord. I want you to be encouraged from this gospel. That is the exact kind of person that God loves to use. Why? Because his power is what? Made perfect in our weakness. And his grace is shown to be sufficient. And he alone gets all the glory. So in the light of redemptive history, as we find ourselves in the gospel of Luke, we see that the light of the sun of righteousness is beginning to break over the horizon. Soon it's going to show up in its fullness. It's a call to remember God's sovereign plan to bring about salvation for his people. Salvation that began in this gospel with the prophet who is going to come. And maybe we even praise God afresh this morning that in Christ Jesus, on the other side of this gospel narrative, that we can praise him that he has indeed delivered us from the domain, the kingdom of darkness. He's transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you are a God who is merciful and gracious, that you abound in steadfast mercy and love unto your people, that we who are so often, that we so often find ourselves struggling to believe your covenant promises and yet you still Fulfill them in our lives through the power of your Spirit and the kindness of your Son, Jesus Christ. So Lord, help us to be encouraged from this study. Lord, we pray that the Spirit would do wonderful things through it. 
that only he alone can do through my small words and this wonderful text, that we might be built up in Christ, that he might be exalted in our midst, and that you would be glorified in our fellowship. And we do pray all of these things in Jesus' name alone. Amen.